1: Wake up every morning with Just the News. All the news and none of the noise.
2: Good morning. Welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. Well, it all comes down to this Georgia. Today is the Georgia runoff for the two Senate seats that will determine the control of the U.S. Senate and Likely, what's going to happen to Joe Biden's agenda if Joe Biden takes the White House? Joining me to walk through what's happening right now in Georgia is a senior advisor with the Trump campaign, Jason Miller. Good morning.
3: Carrie. good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: So let's talk about Georgia. The president was down in Georgia last night. He had a big rally, a huge rally, as he would say. And he said, your vote tomorrow will decide which party controls the United States Senate. The radical Democrats are trying to capture Georgia's Senate seats so they can wield unchecked, unrestrained, absolute power over every aspect of your lives. He was not mincing words there. What's been the response since that rally?
3: Well, it's been a great shot in the arm, I think, for both David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Uh, Good reminder to Election Day voters, Trump supporters, the Republican base, folks who maybe supported the president this go round, uh, who don't really put themselves into a political camp. But it was a good reminder that if you care about the rule of law, if you care about lower taxation, a strong national defense, if you think the political correctness from the Democrats is crazy, not even to be able to say amen, you have to say amen and a woman now. I mean, Kerry, they are into crazy town. We have to stop Raphael Warnock, stop John Ossoff. Ossoff Sapon of the CCP, Raphael Warnock. I mean, let's, I don't even know how much we can get into uh, the allegations of the, the church camp here since this is a family show, uh, but it's not good. Uh, you can Google it and find out yourself. But David Perdue, Kelly Loeffler, critical we re- reelect him today.
2: Let's talk about what's happened so far because the early turnout, that's been the the big dispute here for the presidential. But looking at Georgia, when we we looked here at Just the News, my colleague Nick Valacy, and we'll put his headline up, but according to Georgia Votes, which is a website that looks at how so far the Georgia state has been voting, there are 3.041 million Georgians have voted in the general election, but this was compared to 3.936 million at the same time. So you're talking about 900,000 fewer people who have voted in absentee. Given that we know that the absentees were generally leaning Democrat, or in some cases overwhelmingly leaning Democrat, does this give you some hope here?
3: Well, it does give me some hope, but also in speaking with both the Purdue and Leffler camps over the last 24, 48 hours, their contention would be that Democrats have cannibalized a lot of their Election Day votes that they've gone through now. They've seen uh, who's voted uh, back in November 3rd early, who voted on Election Day. They tried to cage and capture those votes early this go-round. Uh, I saw that Carl Rove was out there saying that he thinks that Purdue and Leffler need to capture about 62 percent of the Election Day vote, uh, which is definitely within the range. I think as we were looking at some of the numbers for President Trump going into Election Day, we were seeing it more like 67, 68 percent in a lot of places. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of concern, especially in Georgia, when you talk about the absentee, the drop boxes and the chain of uh, custody with those actual live ballots, their concerns about what's happening with the the suitcases of ballots, as we saw from the videotape, uh, going back to uh, the hearing in early December. And so I think a lot of Trump supporters, a lot of Republicans, people are going to show up today to vote for David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are going to want to actually be there in person to vote for them, to minimize any craziness that Democrats might want to pull.
2: So Jason, I want to ask you because last night when the president was down in Georgia, one thing he did say was that he said in a year and a half, I will be back here in Georgia and I will be campaigning against Governor Kemp. Governor Kemp is the Republican governor of Georgia and President Trump says that he thinks that Kemp hasn't done enough to push back on what the president has says is voter fraud in Georgia. Do you think though that this is a form of political cannibalization, sort of eating your own within your own party? Is this problematic?
3: I don't think so. I think, if anything, it probably fires up the Trump supporters, lets them know that the president is still involved in the fight, and he's not going anywhere. And I think that's important to keep in mind, Kerry, that uh, this is really the party of President Trump. And regardless of how tomorrow's electoral count uh, ends up turning out, the fact of the matter is everybody wants President Trump's endorsement. He's the biggest name in American politics. The crowd that you're showing right now on television, that is unlike anything we've ever seen in American politics. Uh, Look, I've been doing this a long time, a couple of decades, worked on races all around the country, had the opportunity to work for the president both 2016 and in 2020. No one has ever had crowds like this and energy. And the fact that, look, uh, Trafalgar had a poll that came out just a couple of days ago that showed that Doug Collins, the congressman who lost in the primary to Kelly Leffler uh, is actually beating Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor in a two- to one clip. So uh, I'm not even sure that Brian Kemp's going to be able to run in a couple of years. he'll probably try uh, but I think whoever runs against him in the primary probably wins. but look uh, Trump supporters today shown up for Purdue, shown up for Leffler. These are strong Trump allies we need them in the Senate. We can't give the Democrats control.
2: I want to put up a tweet that you put out and you said, if you want to send a message to the powerful forces that are trying to control you and destroy our country, you must get out and vote for David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. That was your tweet. So what in terms of these forces, you say forces that are trying to control you and destroy our country. What about the Biden message? Because Biden says that he wants to have unity. He says he wants to have healing. What say you to that?
3: Yeah. And the quote that I put up, there was actually a line from President Trump's speech last night that he delivered at this rally in Dalton, Georgia, in North Georgia. And uh, when you talk about Joe Biden, I think it's important to keep in mind exactly what he wants to do with taxation in this country. He wants to raise everyone's taxes. He wants a Green New Deal. Uh, And just to be clear, he might say he doesn't want the AOC. Green New Deal, which is redo every building in the United States in the next 10 years. But his Green New Deal will kill fracking. It will kill any energy exploration that's going on in the United States. And also, too, I think we're going to see this political correctness uh, run amok, really uh, be what rules the day in a Biden White House if it comes to that. And the fact of the matter is, uh, as I I referenced earlier, the amen and amen, a woman uh, nonsense coming from the Democrats, but everything in Joe Biden's world is identity politics. To your question about unity, identity politics, in my opinion, drives people apart. We're all Americans, we might have political differences, let's have the election, let's have a fair election, make sure we get the absolute right outcome where the legal votes are counted, illegal votes are not counted, but then let's try to come together as a country. I don't see Joe Biden being able to do that, especially, Especially uh, when we know that uh, his biography is uh, cribbed and copied from Neil Kinnock uh, from the UK, and now we're seeing this new report that Kamala Harris cribbed one right, of. Uh, you her know more- what? Her-
2: Let's talk about that after the commercial break because I've got something to put up on screen about that. Stay here with us, folks. We got more with Jason Miller on the Electoral College decision in Congress. Stay tuned.
0: Have you heard? You can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free. Good news.
2: Hey, welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and glad you are here with us. Jason Miller from the Trump campaign joins us here again. And just before the break, we were talking about something that Jason actually tweeted about, and this is Kamala Harris, who is Joe Biden's running mate. She's been accused of plagiarizing Martin Luther King Jr., an anecdote in which she claims that she, as a toddler, says that she wanted freedom while she was at a uh, rally, a civil rights rally, as a child, but it turns out the almost verbatim language was used by MLK to describe something that happened at one of his rallies. What is going on here, Jason?
3: Well, the only thing that's worse uh, than identity politics in the U.S. is when it's fake identity politics, and so here's Kamala Harris literally stealing from MLK, and this is Dr. Martin Luther King, the greatest civil rights leader. In our country's history, and she's ripping off one of his stories. I mean, I thought it was bad when she said that Tupac was uh, her favorite rapper alive in one of the interviews. Of course, Tupac died back in the mid '90s. I was always a little more partial to Biggie uh, personally on my end. If we're gonna (laughs) if we're gonna talk about the greatest rapper alive, I mean, uh, look, it's probably Nas or Ice Cube. But these are all names. Yeah. Uh, OK, well, these are these are all names uh, that uh, Kamala Harris wouldn't know because it's fake identity politics. And here's the thing with President Trump. Here's what I've loved having the opportunity to work for him over the last few years is what he says publicly is the exact same thing that he says privately. You know what he's thinking at all times because he's going to tell you there's nothing more than Americans hate than insincere, fake politicians who, uh, who literally don't even have their own identity. It's all made up. And the sad thing is you take a look at Joe Biden and you see the way that, well, I'll just put it this way. We saw what the Democrats did with Dianne Feinstein and how they're basically pushing her out the door because she forgot a name a couple of times. You know, Democrats will try to push Joe Biden out and anoint Kamala Harris. And then I think people would be really scared with what they're gonna get. Fake identity politics. uh, This is just the camel's nose under the tent. Wait till we find out about the rest.
2: I mean, it's it's a, it's the Olympics of fake virtue signaling. It's, it's remarkable. Let's move to the election, though, the presidential and what is going to happen tomorrow. So we had on our program, as you mentioned, Jenna Ellis. Uh, she said that she thinks that Vice President Pence could defer certifying the election and send requests to the state legislatures. And a related headline we had yesterday, we did a news alert about this. In Georgia, some state senators have written to Pence and said, we want you to postpone the electoral counting. Give us 10 or 12 days to keep tallying things up, to keep investigating this, according to a report from the Epoch Times. So in terms of the actual possibility of Pence doing something here, last night in Georgia, the president said, if Pence doesn't do anything, I'll like him less. Legally, though, the Wall Street Journal, for example, wrote an op-ed or ran an op-ed of some legal expert I've spoken to legal experts, and they say that Pence's hands are actually pretty tied here.
3: So I'll be clear at the front here that I'm not a constitutional law expert, uh, but I do speak with the members of our legal team, and I do speak with the president. And our goal, just to be very clear for everybody, our goal tomorrow is to make sure that we Lay out all of the specific cases of fraud, irregularities, the unconstitutional voting that happened in a number of states in a very tight, detailed, buttoned up manner. So the American people can see, not in a way that the mainstream media can try to gloss over, not in a way that local politicians, Democrats, or even Republicans in some places want everyone to forget about. But here are the examples. When we get to that third state, Arizona, and Congressman Gosar stands up there and lists the unconstitutional manner in which voters were registered. In the state of Arizona, we go through the 3% uh, error rate with the sample ballots that have been examined. We go to the out-of-state voters, the illegal voters. In the state of Arizona, there will be tight, detailed, buttoned-up examples. And we're going to have this Debate on the national stage, and then Americans can realize and make the decision for themselves: should some of these states have their electoral votes uh, counted for Joe Biden, or should they be for President Trump? Now, I believe that, especially when we go to states like Wisconsin, and we see the nature in which uh, the the gross counting of ballots that didn't have an application uh, on file to be able to vote by mail. You take a look at Georgia where even the State Senate, uh, State Senate Judiciary Committee uh, held a hearing and said that Georgia's election was untrustworthy. Again, that's not from the Trump campaign. That's from State Senate uh, Judiciary Committee in Georgia. You look at 27 legislators in Pennsylvania running Mitch McConnell. We think that any member of Congress, any Senator, the vice president, anyone there tomorrow will look at the preponderance of evidence and say, we can't certify or count some of these votes for Biden. They need to go for Trump. But again, the goal here, let's count all the legal votes. Don't count the illegal votes, but let's have this debate on the national stage.
2: So again, so you say the goal is to put out the information and you said it's for the American people. But then what outcome do you want? What do you want to have happen specifically, concretely?
3: Well, what I want to have happen is I want to make sure that we get the results right for the election. And I want to make sure that everybody, if you're a Republican and a Trump supporter, if you're a Democrat and a Biden supporter, that you can have confidence in how the election turned out at a state-by-state basis. Let's go, go through it. So I believe that President Trump won this election. I believe that as we put forward the evidence tomorrow, and again, it doesn't go through the media filter. It doesn't go through the spin. That when members from these specific states raise their hands and say, we object, you get someone from the House, someone from the Senate, then they go to two hours of debate, then they vote and come back. I think a lot of hearts and minds will change and it'll be very tough for anybody in the Capitol tomorrow to go and certify some of these states uh, that currently have their electoral votes going to Joe Biden when people realize just how much fraud and irregularities there are. Now, there is talk from uh, obviously Senator Cruz, and we like what he's done uh, with pushing the idea of having an audit go through some of these examples. That's a great idea. Jenna laid out another possible scenario of sending it back to the states, although I think that's probably unlikely to happen. Uh, I think that the more likely scenario is it's going to be decided, well, when I say tomorrow, it might actually stretch into Thursday, but we want to make sure that the American people uh, are fully able to see and hear exactly what has gone on in this election, because we have the election today in Georgia. We have the midterms in 2022, another presidential race in 2024. We have to get this right. We've been kicking the can down the road for years. We haven't dealt with the problems, and we can't allow Democrats to try to, under the guise of COVID, try to rig the elections by mechanizing this mail-in voting in a partisan fashion.
2: And Jason, you know we've been reporting about all these questions, all of the evidence, all the irregularities here, just the news. But what specific reforms, real quick in the last minute that we have, what specific reforms are you wanting to see electorally?
3: Well, number one, let's respect Article Two of the Constitution and that these have to be state legislatures that go and make all of the rules. I mean that's real crystal clear laid out in the constitution. It's not supposed to be from executive fiat, from a local uh, county official, or even from a a rogue Democratic governor. Um, As much as I I hate it, and I I don't like the way that they did it in Nevada, they actually went about it in a constitutional fashion. They just said, hey, we're going to pass this bill at four in the morning to go and rig this for Democrats. Now, the problem is they sent out the live ballots to everybody. We have the out-of-state voters, we have the felons, we have the uh, folks who aren't citizens who are voting, some of those concerns. But they did go through the state legislature, which is the way that you're supposed to do it. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, even some of the things that they did in, uh, in Georgia with the consent decree, uh, we do not think were done in the proper fashion. And so we want to make sure that, uh, that folks are not uh, mechanizing the rigging of elections uh, by blasting out ballots to everyone and, and really undermining the security.
2: All right. Jason Miller from the Trump 2020 campaign. Always a pleasure to have you here on Just the News. Thanks, Gary. Stay with us, folks. We've got more coming up, including digging into what's happening with China and how China has actually seen economic growth, believe it or not, in 2020. Stay tuned.
0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: Hey, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad you are here with us. Well, we're going to talk about all things Treasury here in just a moment with a spokeswoman from the Treasury Department, but I want to dig into a headline here from the Wall Street Journal today editorial page, and they ran an op-ed looking at China and basically what the argument here from this op-ed writer, Kevin Warsh, he says that China is basically trying to overthrow the United States as the financial powerhouse of the world and they're doing this through lots of ways in court including According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the Chinese direct holdings of U.S. government debt have fallen in each of the past five months, and they're now at the lowest level in nearly five years. The share of new U.S. debt by China is smaller than it's been in decades. So this op-ed here in The Wall Street Journal is arguing that China is trying to erode the United States because the United States currency is the global currency. It's really that yardstick around how the whole rest of the world is measured, and China is trying to erode this. Joining me to discuss this is my, Monica Crowley with the U.S. Treasury. Good morning, Monica.
0: Good morning, Carrie. Great to be with you.
2: Great to have you. So what's Treasury's perspective on this trend? Because we're seeing China has uh, scaled back its investment in U.S. debt. It appears that in many ways, according to some analysts, that China is trying to overtake the United States as it relates to the currency and just being the financial powerhouse of the world.
0: Well, the Trump administration has understood from the very beginning that this is a longer term trend. President Trump has been absolutely committed in taking on China in every aspect of its newly aggressive posture, whether it's military or in this case, economic. So the Trump administration's uh, policies on, on China and currency have been very aggressive to make sure that the dollar remains the preserved currency of the world and to make sure that we are countering uh, China's economic advances as well. So it remains to be seen if in fact there is a new administration, what their take will be. But for the last four years, the Trump administration has remained committed to making sure that U.S. economic primacy is intact.
2: And we look at 2020 when the United States and a lot of other developed countries, we saw recessions, we saw a drop in our GDP. China actually saw a growth in their GDP, even though this virus originated in China, the Wuhan virus, as the president describes it sometimes. How are you guys looking at this? Because China, again, this is where it originated, but they were much more successful in tamping it down, at least in terms of its effect on the economy. What happened?
0: Well, approach China's economic numbers with caution. Uh, we know that they're not exactly the most reliable source when it comes to putting out their own economic numbers. But it is true that that China does seem to have turned a corner economically in terms of the economic impacts of the virus. The United States and the West look here in the United States, thanks to President Trump's pro-growth economic policies we are actually experiencing the fastest economic recovery from any crisis in American history. And again, that's no coincidence, but we are in an economic uh, challenge and economic competition and a very intense one with China. It is a race now to restore our, our economies across the West. Uh, as a direct uh, effect of this, uh, the impact of of the coronavirus. And we shall see how it shakes out. I do think there are a lot of things being reset in every direction, including economically. And we will see how it it, uh, works out. But again, no coincidence that we are experiencing this very robust economy. And it's a direct result of the president's policies, which remain in place, so had remained in place except frozen during the uh, the economic crisis starting last March. But now that we have emerged from the uh, most acute period of the virus and the economic impact along with the CARES Act, the new COVID relief bill, and all of the pro-growth policies from the tax cuts to deregulation to fairer, more reciprocal trade, all of those policies have kicked back in. And
2: that's why we're experiencing the kind of growth that we are. And speaking of the stimulus, when can folks expect to get the checks or the payments to hit their bank accounts for the stimulus?
0: I know everybody is very eager to get their money, as they should be, and a $600 payment for individuals who are eligible, $1,200 for married couples and dependent children. You get a little bit more, of course. Um, We are very proud to announce that, as we did the first time around with the CARES Act, we have moved with unprecedented speed to get folks who still are are impacted by COVID-19 their money. So as of last Wednesday, December 30th, direct deposits started to go out into people's accounts and paper checks also started to go out. So it it depends, you may not get your money this time around the same way you got it the first time around, but the vast majority of people will. It requires no action whatsoever. You don't have to lift a finger, you don't have to do anything. The IRS had the infrastructure ready to go and that's why we were able to move with rapid, rapid speed. If you have any questions, you can go to irs.gov slash getmypayment to check on the status of your payment, where it is, whether it's already been deposited or if it's on its way.
2: Hey, that's a very simple website. That's easy to remember. In terms of the $2,000 payment, so this was something that President Trump had been pushing for. Mitch McConnell said, no, this is gonna be a big debt problem. The president also said that he was upset that the stimulus that he, he did end up signing, had a lot of things that were not explicitly covert related, including foreign aid, things that were basically Some said basically like a Christmas wish list or a Christmas tree loaded with things that were unrelated to COVID. Should we just looking at how much debt we have at this point, our debt to GDP ratio is super high. It's it's just if we have another stimulus, as the president has been pushing for, won't this burden future generations and just put us on an unsustainable path?
0: So a few things. Yes, the president has been arguing for many months for more money for direct payments, and he would like to see 2000, as you mentioned. There are two different elements to, to the package that the president signed. It was all put into one massive bill called the consolidated appropriations act. So the Christmas tree items of spending that you refer to is in the omnibus spending bill. They also took the coronavirus response and relief supplemental appropriations bill also known as the coronavirus relief bill and packaged it with the omnibus bill into one giant bill. So the relief bill is a separate issue and that was attached to the bigger spending bill. So the relief bill did have a couple of things in there that were directly related to COVID relief. The stimulus payments, the renewal of the PPP program, additional money for the aviation industry and those jobs, Uh, rental assistance, a brand new program for renters uh, who are struggling to meet their rent. There's a new rental assistance program that should be stood up this or early next week. So there are those things that were directly related to the impact of COVID-19, as opposed to uh, the omnibus spending to which you're referring. But I can tell you to your question about uh spending and the spending levels this president this administration have been very concerned from the beginning about from the beginning of the crisis rather about the spending levels but we also understood that this was an unprecedented economic impact due to an unprecedented situation and it was akin to fighting a war and when you're fighting a war you do need to spend whatever it takes to get through it and now the solution will be economic growth And we are already starting to see that thanks to the president's economic policies.
2: All right, Monica Crowley there at the U.S. Treasury. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Karen. Stay tuned, we've got Justin Hart coming back. He's dug into the numbers, looking at some more of these election anomalies. Stay tuned. And then welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and joined again by Justin Hart, the founder of Rational Grounds. And he's also a data expert. Good morning, Justin.
1: Good morning, Carrie. Great to be with you.
2: Good to have you. So I want to put up some data charts. You are the data wonk. You worked on the Romney campaign uh, on data, but you have been defending President Trump and his team on these electoral questions. Let's put up this first chart. So you say, consider this chart. There are 15 states which have provided official rejection rates for their mail-in and absentee ballots. Results. In 2016, 2% of ballots were rejected. This year, less than 1%. How do rejection rates fall by two-thirds while absentee ballots increase tenfold? So why do they, Justin? Yeah,
1: well, look, in some states, uh, like in Pennsylvania, the increase uh, of absentee and mail-in ballot requests was incredibly dramatic. We all know that much of that was caused by executive fiat uh, under the guise of issues around the pandemic. Uh, and so in California, for example, they decided to mail a ballot to everyone regardless of whether you requested it or not. In Pennsylvania, for example, they had 91,000 votes for Democrats in 2016. 91,000 Democrats requested absentee ballots. That number skyrocketed to over 1.5 million. And so there are definitely issues in Georgia as they vote today. The rejection rate that they saw in 2016, that is when you mail in a ballot, when you request an absentee ballot, there are issues. Uh, You might know that you have some help there at the ballots, at the polls, if you go in person. But when you mail in, there is a definitive rejection rate. And in 2016 in Georgia, that rate was 6%. And now in 2020, in November's election, that rate dropped to 0.6. They moved a decimal point. But the increase in mail-in ballots went up 700%. And so that number alone gives me pause to try to understand What is happening in these elections? I think, as Senator Cruz has pointed out, this is not an effort to thwart the democratic process. This is an effort to increase confidence in our democratic constitutional rights.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned this error rate because Scott Rasmussen, who's a pollster with us here at Just the News, he's pointed out that if you're a first-time balloter. In terms of absentee ballots, so if it's your first time compared to your experienced, you've done it before in the past, your rejection rate is three times that of someone who is more experienced just because you're much more likely to do something wrong. You fill in the wrong bubble, you, you mail it wrong, you have the wrong address. Whatever you do, that the, the rejection rate historically has been three times higher. You're telling us here it's actually, for 2020, so much more or less. What do you think's happened?
1: Uh, well, I think, for example, a lot of the stringencies that they put on uh, the demands of checking signatures, the amount of manpower required to check these things, uh, perhaps they change things in the way that it's electronically audited. There are a number of issues, and that's why I think a lot of these senators are calling for an audit of the election, emergency audit, so that they can see exactly what's happening here. A lot of these issues have not been resolved, and there are numerous other ones. There are a dozen allegations of illegal votes in Georgia alone. There are about 24 uh, instigations of other anomalies that people want to know the answers to. Uh, they're just in the Peach State. So I think a lot of people really want to get to the bottom of these issues, and they haven't been satisfied. I certainly haven't been satisfied yet to uh, to my degree to understand exactly what transpired. And I think uh, a lot of governors, a lot of uh, legislators have used the guise and the cover of the pandemic to push through stuff that should be pushed through by the legislature. Uh, here in California, for example, a uh, the court rejected, uh, post-mortem though, uh, Governor Newsom's ability to actually mail ballots to every citizen. They said that was improper. He didn't have the right to do that. That was something that should have been taken up by the legislature, but it was too late. The, the ballots had already gone out and the election had already taken place.
2: So you have put out so much data here and so many charts and the president has taken notice. Some of it, the information was used in testimony in Pennsylvania, in the legislatures that we've seen. But despite all of this evidence, the courts over and over these allegations and the lawsuits that have been brought, they keep losing. So why do you think this is? Do you think that the evidence is not convincing? I mean, what's why is there such a disconnect between what you're saying versus the courts?
1: Look, I, I think the courts are very loath to overturn election. A lot of the, tr- uh, the the cases that have been brought before courts have been very novel in their approach in that these have not been seen before. But the challenges to election are nothing new. Um, I'm hoping that we'll see some sort of movement this week by the Supreme Court to accept some of these challenges and see what's happening there. It's, it's untoward to me that you could have this much evidence both on the setup to the election on election day and then as the votes came in those three different parts of the pipeline that we've been talking about where there's real evidence of smoke and we have some distinct efforts of fires that we've seen as well so i i, I actually believe that uh, by mid-year the courts they work very slowly time has not been on the president's hands and people are doing this in the right way uh, i i think that we will see some state certifications be overturned uh by mid-year by maybe the end of the quarter here. But that doesn't help the president as he ends up towards uh, facing this inauguration of, uh, of, of Vice President Biden into the White House.
2: Really, which states do you think would be overturned?
1: Oh, I believe Georgia will be overturned. I believe Wisconsin is actually considering legislation today. Their legislature is taking it up to actually uh, nullify the certification that they have there as well. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens here. But there is a, enough questions about the election uh, to really call into question certain of these state certifications. Uh, I hope at the very least, this will help teach us and prompt us towards better, fairer, easier elections in the coming years. We need to have that confidence in our most basic right of the Constitution.
2: All right. Justin Hart, founder of Rational Grounds and data expert, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kerry. Stay tuned. We've got the Alpha Investor founder and host of The Charles Mizrahi Show coming up next. Hey good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, joined by Charles Mizrahi. He's, he's founder and Alpha. He's the founder of Alpha Investor and host of the Charles Mizrahi show. Good morning, Charles.
4: Good morning, Carrie. How are you?
2: doing well. So let's talk about China. So earlier in the program, we had on a woman from the Treasury Department. We were talking about a Wall Street Journal op-ed that just ran today that was looking about how China has basically they've scaled back their purchases of U.S. treasuries. The argument by this op-ed writer, Kevin Warsh, he's saying that China is trying to surpass the United States as the reserve currency, that it's the yardstick by which all other countries measure their money, That China is really by even in 2020, their economy grew even while our economy contracted and they're making moves. He outlines what these moves are to try to supplant the United States as the financial superpower. Do you agree that this is heading in this direction?
4: Well, I didn't read the article, didn't read the uh, op-ed piece, but I will say this. uh, China plays for keeps. And it is very possible that that's their plan, although uh, they've been really great over the past few years disguising what their actual plans are. But if you just read between the lines, it's really world domination. Uh, they have the second largest GDP. They have, uh, we, we deal with uh, the United States and China, we have about $558 billion in trade between us, but it's really a one-way deal. Uh, we import close to $450 billion from them. They only put about $100 billion from us. Unfair playing field. IP uh, intellectual property is not protected in China. The locals, uh, any time there's a court uh, case, uh, locals win over foreign companies. And uh, President G is basically signaling that uh, they're going to flex their muscle, and and they're really at an economic war with the United States.
2: So here at Justin News, we reported last week about how the Trump administration has put a ban on. US investment in Chinese military companies. So specifically, it was an executive order from President Trump. It prohibits exchange traded funds and index funds from financing Chinese military companies and or any related subsidiary companies. The big question here is whether the Biden administration will continue this policy. First of all, do you think that this is warranted? Do you think this is a good move? How do you think investors will respond? And then what do you think Biden's going to do?
4: Okay, so he has two questions, what are investors going to do to this move and what's uh, President Biden or President-elect Biden going to do? So let's deal with the first one. Uh, President Trump has been really the only president in recent memory that actually took on China. He stood up to them with tariffs. He talked tough for them. Previous presidents, uh, the Bushes, uh, Clinton, Obama, they just let China steamroll them. And really they did. It It was unfair. Just speak to anybody that does manufacturing in China, and they'll tell you what the real story is. So what President Trump did was, we'll go down in history, as a uh, the first time a U.S. president stood up against China and stood up with, with tariffs in a big way. Uh, this executive order, yeah, I don't know how much it will affect investors, it'll probably affect more of index funds and, and those who uh, monitor those things, but uh, the overall thing, I don't think, I don't think it's gonna be a, a major, major big deal. The big deal is this, we have a government that has over a billion plus people, second largest world economy. They have us buy a very sensitive area in terms of production. They're the supply chain to the United States. And we saw this during COVID. We saw this during COVID when we couldn't get masks, when we drugs and 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 the supply chain was disrupted. You know, the stuff from Amazon it would take weeks to come because it wasn't coming from China. So uh, until we find uh, an alternative to manufacture and get raw materials, other than China, which is very difficult because no one has their capacity. Are we be- seeing,
2: Charles, are we seeing companies start to do that? Because at least at the beginning, we did see some companies that were trying to shift away, maybe some other Asian countries like the Philippines or Vietnam, that they would fill in the gap. Are we continuing to see that trend or is it just tapered off?
4: every contact I've spoken to, in fact, I spoke to a good friend of mine who manufactures in China for the past 50 years, he says, we're looking at Indonesia, we're looking at Vietnam, uh, we're looking at India, we're looking at Bangladesh, but there is no one, there's no one that has the capacity and the low cost that China has that China has. He told me to get goods from China to, to, his, to, to New York takes about 11 days. Bangladesh, India is 30, 35 days. That is a huge, huge, huge disadvantage. Secondly, these companies, these countries do not have the capacity. They don't have the capacity of, of having millions of workers and factories and infrastructure. So even if you wanted to decide, another uh, a friend of mine uh, manufactures um, uh, cribs. And he was looking to move from China, but who has the capacity to do so?
2: So, I we did see a case study here. So, here at Just News in September, I reported about a company called Ant Technology Group, and it's a very large Chinese company. The expected IPO was forty. 40- billion. But the company had to put the scuttlebutt. They were planning to list it on the stock exchange. They've had to put the kibosh on it because enough U.S. investors and U.S. pressure and concerns among the Chinese about the increased scrutiny on regulation. They actually canceled this IPO in November. So there was here a case of Westerners pushing back and saying, you guys aren't disclosing enough. We're not getting enough here under the hood. Do you think this is a case study that should be replicated?
4: It's not going to make a squat of difference because here's the deal. You're dealing with a government that doesn't care about human rights, that just trampled Hong Kong, that just jailed people trying to flee the country by speedboat. Uh, You're looking at a country that has, I don't know how many millions, if I say between 1 million and 5 million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. So do you think all of these little things are going to make a big deal? They control the supply lines to the world. And until we can figure out a way to circumvent that or come up with some backups, we're gonna be behind the eight ball. It's, it, that's, really the, that's really the down low of it.
2: All right, Charles Mizrahi, we appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Kerry. Stay tuned. We will be right back. I've got an interesting take here from a singer. He's he's very apolitical, but he weighs in on this a men a woman controversy. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back here to Justin News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and I'm glad you're with us. I want you to take a listen here to this clip. We're going to talk about it after. Just listen.
4: May the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon us and give us peace peace in our families, peace across this land, and dare I ask, O oh Lord, peace even in this chamber, now and evermore. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. Amen, and a woman.
2: So that's Emmanuel Cleaver. He is the Congressman who was opening up the 117th Congress. So. My parents live in this guy's district. He's got a boulevard named after himself. It's called Emmanuel Cleaver II Boulevard. So, and he's doing this while he's alive. So the man clearly has a lot of self love for himself. The man's also a pastor and he's going and he's using the word a woman here. I've got a statement here from a singer, uh, Chris Tomlin, who's a very well-known Christian singer. He says, first session of Congress for the new year opened up with Rep. Cleaver, ending his prayer with amen and a woman. Amen means so be it. It has nothing to do with gender. Prayer is not a place for an agenda. OK, when you've lost Chris Tomlin, Chris Tomlin is one of the most soft and uh, just uh, non-conflict oriented person. And when you've got you've lost him, you pretty much lost uh, everyone on your side, um, uh, at least on, on the Christian side. Cleaver says that a woman was ending the prayer to recognize the record number of women in Congress. We'll see if that spin holds up. Also, I thought that gender was just a construct. So why would this Democrat need to even specify a gender? Doesn't make sense to me. Stay tuned. War Room is next.